we continue in our examination of the book of Hebrews, this morning we'll begin reading in chapter 4, verse 14, and read down through chapter 5, verse 10. Hebrews 4, 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin or sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is indeed the word of our great God. Join me for a moment in prayer. And now, Father, we ask that by your spirit, as we have prayed before, we pray again now. Please take this, the preaching of your word, and make it powerful and effective in the lives of the hearers today. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the observance of certain ordinances, practices, what some might call rituals, can, if you're unfamiliar, be a bit confusing. Most of us know what it's like to have a child ask about baptism. So why do they get to go swimming? Is that a dunk tank? Well, in that case, kind of accurate. Or the Lord's Supper. Why don't I get a snack? I recall one of my confusions as a small child was I wondered how they got the money to heaven. I mean, they took up an offering, passed the plates, and then I was trying to figure out how does the money get from the church building to heaven. So in my very meager thinking of the day, 
I, in my head, imagined a machine that probably involved a crank of some sort. And in some fashion, it then allowed the money to, if you will, float its way into heaven. Now, we laugh about that. But boy, sometimes when you read the text, or like in this case, when you read the book of Hebrews, you find yourself in a strange world that seems distant and confusing. After all, we've never seen the temple. We've never seen the tabernacle. Uh, We've never met a Jewish high priest. Sometimes it may seem difficult to connect with these references, which are at least 2,000 years old and actually have a history that goes far further back than that. When the writer of Hebrews looks back at the Old Covenant, he's comparing it to the New Covenant. He's presenting to these readers who are being tempted to go back into the familiarity of the Old Covenant, back into Judaism of their heritage. He's showing them, as best he can, a picture of the greatness of Jesus Christ. Compared to others, Jesus is greater. So how does he go about doing this? And what is it that he works at here? And I love this because I think for most of us, We need the encouragement most of the time to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. We are so fraught with and inundated with ugly, horrible, awful things. Warfare. The horrors of the last two or three weeks. Violence. Ugliness. How can we see the greatness of Christ? And what is it that needs to happen? I I thank Kent Hughes for this notion. I think in a sense the Lord does this for us with with a great joy actually. And the comparison I think would come down to this. We're a little ways out from uh, 4th of July. But I mean New Year's is coming. I, I just calculated Christmas is nine weeks away. I just gave some of you a panic attack. Uh, Yeah. But have you ever noticed the joy of a child the first time they see fireworks, assuming it doesn't freak them out? You know, I pretty much abandoned fireworks after a certain age until children came along. And then... Okay, I'll confess. I love going to the fireworks stand. The only thing I don't love is paying at the end. But I love going to the fireworks stand. And I love looking at all this stuff. And it's like, okay, Doug, there's this battle between the 10-year-old kid that's still inside of me and uh, the older gentleman, who I actually am, about how much money you actually spend on this stuff. It is as much fun to watch their faces as it is to watch the show. There's a joy in that wonder, right? And I think that's kind of what the Lord does for us in this text in Hebrews. He is holding up for us to see the greatness and the glory of Christ and the joy, the confidence, the assurance that ought to produce in us. Hebrews 3.1 
Starts this way, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a holy calling or heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's his first time to reference Jesus as high priest. He does it chapter 3, verse 1. But here he takes up that imagery of high priest and he expands on it. You see, folks, our tendency, I believe, is we look for mediators, we look for somebody who gives us some comfort and confidence that God's okay with us. And the tendency of human beings to look for mediators is in a sense a good thing because we do need a mediator, but in another sense a tragedy because we look wrong places for that mediation. Confident Christian living comes from knowing Jesus, your great high priest. So, two primary considerations here. First, our great high priest does give us confidence. The last verses of chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. He is, in this text, our firm foundation. We are called, let us hold fast our confession. Here is the imperative. As I said, we tend to want a priest, an intermediary, an intermediary, and these believers in the New Testament era were under such pressure. They wanted to have a priest again. They wanted to do what's familiar again. They wanted somebody to intercede for them. And the author is trying to point out, you've not lost a priest, you've gained the great high priest. You've lost nothing, you've gained everything. I love the way the writer does this. When he uses the phrase great high priest, it's kind of a way of playing, I think, on the Hebrew, which in Hebrew, if you want to do an intensive or superlative, you repeat the word. Well, he doesn't repeat exactly, but it's awfully close. He uses high priest, which is a superlative, and he follows it with great, literally high priest great. This is who we have, the great high priest. How so? Well, first of all, he is the one who has, and he'll talk about this later, passed through the heavens. He says it here. He'll expand on it later. This is a comparison to the high priest who on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, would pass out of sight. He would carry the blood from the sacrifice. He would enter the holy place. And then inside the holy place, he would then step beyond the veil into the most holy place. And so once a year, the high priest would step out of sight. In this case, Jesus is said to have passed through the heavens. He has gone out of our sight, but it's not to a localized temple. In fact, the author is going to expand on this, that in a very real way, Jesus, in entering heaven, has entered the very throne room of God, the very temple of the great, holy, holy, holy Lord. And in so doing, attained our salvation. His person, he calls him Jesus, the Son of God. Remember, the great high priest is both these things. He is Jesus, Joshua, 
the son of Mary, the son of man. The same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth, preached in Galilee, died on a cross. He is now our great high priest in heaven. There's a human in heaven, bodily, literally raised to heaven. Son of God, not merely human, though fully human. He is creator, sustainer, and judge, Jesus Christ the Son of God, His compassion. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, I know someone may say, but He's in heaven. Can He really know and understand? I, I need somebody flesh and blood who knows me, knows my problems, and by the way, it's kind of a cheat, isn't it? He was God in the flesh. Well, my friend, be careful there lest you fall into a Christological heresy. Jesus was fully, truly, entirely human. Now, some of you are counting. How long is he going to wait before he says the next part? I want you to hold on to that. Jesus was fully, truly, entirely God. And this is the place where it does us good to stop and bow our head and worship for just a bit. Truly human, truly divine. If you go think back and I think Christians get in trouble here at times. We so emphasize the divine nature that we forget the reality of the human nature. Part of what Luther fought against in the Reformation was a view within Catholicism at the time that made Jesus hard and inaccessible. Dangerous to go directly to Jesus. And this is what gave rise to the horror of Mariolatry. Mary gets exalted as the great mother. And like we see in a lot of contexts, I don't know about you, but there were some things I'd a whole lot rather told mom than told dad. Now, not always. But there was usually a little hope that maybe there would be some kindness of heart there, or at least maybe a suspension <laughs> of sentence. But the idea was Mary then could make Jesus less implacable, more inclined to hear and care. But the Scripture here tells us clearly Jesus sympathizes. Now this was weird in the day. Stoicism, which was a popular philosophy at the time, had a God who was apatheia. That is, he didn't care. He was apathetic. He was void of any emotion. 
Epicureans had a God who was intermediate. That is, he was not involved, he didn't care either. In fact, most of them didn't think there was a God out there to whom they had to answer. The Jews had a God, but they did not typically think of him in terms of fatherhood. The idea of a sympathetic God was absolutely revolutionary. And the author is assessing this a second time. He does it in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he was made to be like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself was suffer had suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Now, what is the author trying to tell us about this matter of temptation? He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Middle of verse 15, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now please understand, the author is not trying to tell us that Jesus experienced every single particular temptation, but that he was tempted in every avenue by which temptation could come. And his temptation was worse. I know you said, well, no, that can't be. How could it be worse? See, folks, our suffering and temptation is typically rather short-lived because we give in. I'm sorry, was that too blunt? Our suffering in the face of temptation never reaches the same fever pitch because we roll over quickly. We give up too easily. Jesus experienced the nth degree of what temptation could be, yet without sin. Now some of you still look unconvinced. If the Lord had come to you and said, don't you eat until I tell you it's okay to eat. And you'd said, yes, Lord, I'm fine. Is that just one meal, Lord? Just breakfast and lunch, we'll talk about dinner. Maybe a late night snack, Lord. Lord, it's been 24 hours. Jesus does without food 40 days. Now, brothers and sisters, you do comprehend. At this point, he is legitimately starving to death. And Satan offers the opportunity, and he had the ability to end it. If you're the Son of God, turn this stone into bread. My friend, he who can speak into existence reality, turning a stone into bread's not a big deal. But what does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, my brothers and sisters, just bear that in mind. Whenever you think, well, it was easy for him because he's God in the flesh, 
you are being foolish because you're not recognizing how far he had to go to experience the nth degree, the ultimate degree of temptation. You and I would not typically, I'd say, have made it for 40 days, and our problem is we'd have sinned in other ways during the 40 days to get to that point. Mm. Tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And so with that, he encourages us to have confidence. Hold fast your confession. The confession of him as your Lord and Savior, of him as your only high priest, of him as the sympathetic Savior. This gives confidence, a courageous confidence. I, I love that, that 16th verse. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, do, have you heard this so much you've lost the essence the power of that statement? The throne isn't just the throne of majesty. It is not merely the throne of glory. It is not just the throne of justice. It is the throne of grace. Christian, when you come to the throne of God, you come to grace enthroned. I'm a mess. Yes, and a failure, and you stumble, and you stagger, and you whine. You give in to your sins, you give in to your temptations. You wonder if it's all worth it. And you come to the throne of God Almighty, and what you find, Christian, is the throne of grace. The place to find mercy because you're pitiful. <laughs> and the place to find grace because you are sinful. Come with confidence to that throne. Later he will tell us in chapter 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, that is the confidence, but now here comes the second part. Is this great high priest qualified to save us? Can, is he actually is supposed to be in this role? That's these first ten verses of chapter five. Now, we're going to be doing this quickly. I don't know whether you've caught on yet or not, folks, but we are running at a very fast pace. There's so much here that you could camp on and dig into far deeper than we have. But you see, our great high priest not only grants us confidence, our great high priest is qualified to give us that confidence. He's qualified to save us. So what does he start with? Well, he talks about the earthly high priest. So the first four verses, every high priest chosen from among men, and he's talking about the practice and he gives his qualifications. What's the first? Well, he had to identify with the people. Chosen from among men. Appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. 
He had to be a human. No angel could do this. No other being could do the job. Only a true man can understand what it's like to be a man. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. And he had to present himself before God. Now, again, this is where we don't have this in mind because this is not our heritage. But bear in mind what they're thinking when they think about this high priest. First of all, he had special garments. He had a robe that was blue. Attached to the robe's hem were pomegranates woven from blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Alternating with each pomegranate was a small gold bell. And the robe was held in place with a multicolored sash. Over the robe went a type of apron called an ephod. It was woven of linen, gold threads, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. That apron, the ephod, had shoulder pieces made of onyx set in gold. On the two onyx stones were engraved the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, six on one shoulder, six on the other. Fastened to the front of the ephod on gold chains was a breastplate made of gold and set with four rows of three stones each. First row, ruby, topaz, beryl. Second, turquoise, sapphire, emerald. Third, jacinth, agate, amethyst. Fourth, chrysolite, onyx, jasper. On each stone was engraved the name of one of the tribes. Then on his head, he had a turban. A fine linen, and attached to that was a plate of pure gold with this inscription, Holy to the Lord. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying, we have a great high priest. Is he qualified? Well, this, this high priest here is what he wore. All of this was to emphasize his role in representing the people before God. He also had to sympathize with the people. Though he had a high office, he could never consider himself better than the people. When they sinned, he was never to be impatient or mean-spirited, except blatant calculated sin. He had to realize he too was a sinner. We're told in verse 3, because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. Well, according to Leviticus 16, Aaron, when it was time to sacrifice, first offered a bull for his own sin offering to atone for his and the sin of his family. Then he entered the most holy place with incense. Then he sprinkled the blood of the bull on the atonement cover of the ark. Then he cast lots over two live goats brought by the people. One of the goats was killed as a sin offering for the nation, and he'd sprinkle its blood inside the most holy place on the Ark of the Covenant. He'd place his hands on the head of the live goat and confess the sins of the people, and he'd send the live goat away into the wilderness under the terminology we heard growing up of the scapegoat, the goat that carries the sins away was the imagery. And here's a sample of a prayer done by the high priest. I beseech thee, O Lord, I have done wickedly, I have transgressed, I have sinned before thee, I in my house, I beseech thee, O Lord, pardon the iniquities, transgressions, and sins which I have done wickedly, transgressed, and sinned before thee, I and my house. So he had to be 
one who identified with the people, sympathized with the people, but he also had to be authorized by God. This was not a volunteer position. Verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God as Aaron was. He wasn't a volunteer. He wasn't elected. God ordained who would be the high priest. Everyone in the Old Testament who tried to take on the role of high priest suffered for it. Korah and 250 of his followers were swallowed up by the earth because they tried to take the position. Saul lost his kingdom because he took on doing the sacrifice. Uzziah was struck with leprosy for the rest of his life because he tried to act as high priest. So these were the qualifications for the high priest. So what about Jesus? At verse 5, he takes this up. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him. So he's meeting qualifications. How so? First, he's authorized by God. You are my son, today I've begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then down at verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now some of you are dying for me to either talk about Melchizedek or you're dying because you think I'm going to. I will, but not today. The Lord Jesus did not independently decide to take this position to himself. Remember that in accomplishing salvation for us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit operate together. The Father, if you will, chooses whom he will save. The Son, then on their behalf, executes what is necessary in living and dying to secure his people, and the Spirit comes and applies that salvation in regeneration, the new birth, and dwelling with the people of God. In his humanity, Jesus is identified as Son of God. The writer cites Psalm 2-7 as proof. In his humanity, he's not only the messianic son of David, but also the high priest, not in the lineage of Aaron, and we'll look at this at another time, but this mysterious Melchizedek, the high priesthood, and this is fun, we'll look at this later, with Melchizedek isn't just high priesthood, it's also king. Because what we're told in Genesis is that Abraham brought a tithe to Melchizedek, king of Salem, high priest to God. King of Salem, which is the short version of Jerusalem, and high priest to God. Hmm. All this is given to Jesus by the ordaining word of the Father. So does he sympathize with his people? Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. He suffered as we suffer, only he suffered more. The reference here is primarily to the agony of Gethsemane. He crawled out with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Father, deliver me. He didn't say that with some idea that maybe God couldn't, the Father couldn't. 
He did it in terms of the will of his Father. Father, would you save me from this? Yet this is what I have come to do. My friends, do not make light of the suffering of Jesus in Gethsemane. This is real, genuine suffering. He, though he sought a way out, he still submitted to his Father's will, and ultimately he is saved not from death, but through death, and then out of death. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He sympathized. He identified. And you say, well, how does that, how does that help me out? Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves strangers and aliens in this world once we have been brought into the kingdom, right? So how do we go about doing this thing? And how do we respond when the world mistreats us? This isn't merely theoretical. When a young minister of the previous century was castigated by the press and called, and I quote, a pulpit buffoon, and his sermons referred to as trashy, And yes, that was Spurgeon. Pulpit buffoon with trashy sermons. Now children, I'd like to tell you a little secret. I've read the sermons. The only buffoonery were the critics. And the only trash was what they wrote. But here was his response. And folks, this is a young man right around the age of 20. Lord, you made yourself of no reputation for my sake. I willingly lay down my reputation for yours. He identifies with his people. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He does for us the complete work. That's what it means by being made perfect. He completes the work of salvation. He's the source of your salvation. He became the source of eternal salvation. And then he follows up to all who obey him. Now somebody just, oh, there it is. Yes. You've got to obey, you've got to do good works, so you're not going to get into heaven, and I'm sitting here telling you, you're missing the point. The obedience he calls you to is this, believe in me. John 6, when they said, how are we supposed to do the works of God? What are the works of God? Jesus said, the work of God is this, believe in the one he sent. What's your obedience? Believe. For the high priest has done for you all that's needed. He is fully qualified to do all that is needed. He is fully compassionate to do all that is needed. 
And because of that, Christian, you may keep your confession and have glorious confidence to come boldly to the throne of grace no matter how badly you've messed up, no matter how far you've run away, no matter how many sins, how many mistakes, how much mess you have created, you will find that throne a throne of grace and mercy. This Christian is your great high priest. Settle for no one else. Put your confidence no place else. Rest here. Father.